News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we rely on weather forecasts to let us know what it's going to be like outside. And, you know, for the most part, it's fine. But when there is a big storm coming, accuracy means everything. It means having to prepare and maybe evacuate versus maybe having that storm completely miss you. And we saw that during Hurricane Fiona recently, which also exposed some of the flaws in our weather radar system. Joining us now to talk more about this is Robert Way, who's a Queen's University geography professor and climate change researcher. Robert, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Simi. What are some of the concerns that you notice, especially during this Hurricane Fiona situation? I think the the challenge that I um, that really came about with the Hurricane Fiona situation was that uh, the storm, you know, it had a lot of different trajectories. Even even late, there were some different model runs that took it different places, and uh, it ended up going in a direction where we did have. Uh, pretty extensive weather radar coverage. But some of those trajectories would have taken it to areas where where there wasn't, where there were big gaps in our radar coverage. And so what that meant to, would, or what that would mean is that, you know, you, in areas that have radar coverage, you can see where intense bands of precipitation are coming. You can see potentially areas of really intense winds, um, if, if it's raining, at least during the winds. So, if you had the potential that, you know, this storm moved into areas where that coverage wasn't there, um, you know, there's the really the forecasters wouldn't be operating with all the information they would have if they were you know anywhere else. Right. Right. So we tend to think of our weather radar system as being quite comprehensive, but you, you just said there are gaps in it. Yeah, there, there's actually quite a lot of gaps. Um, I'd say our, our radar coverage of Canada is about 30%. So the second, you know, in the south, there's generally pretty good coverage, and they've been doing a lot in the last, like, five years to try and improve the coverage in the south. But the second you start moving further north, um, you you really see the gaps. There's actually no... Uh, none of the territories have radar coverage provided through Environment Canada. There might be some provided a little bit through uh, the U.S. actually. Um, in Newfoundland, Labrador, none of none of Labrador has coverage. None of Northern Quebec, you know, uh, none of the northern parts of, of the provinces have any coverage. And so, if you add it up, it's about thirty percent, or a bit more than thirty percent of Canada have coverage, and about seventy percent doesn't now. That 30% includes the majority of the population, but we're still talking about, you know, four or 500,000 people who um, lack ra- uh, weather radar coverage. And one of the things that, that's important to realize with that is that this includes the vast majority of flying communities. So even something as simple as trying to fly from one community to another, they don't have the actual weather radar uh, in, infrastructure in place to be able to say, oh, is there happened to be freezing rain along that road? You know, Robert, this seems like a big deal, um, the way you just describe it. Like, we tend to assume that, oh, of course there's weather coverage everywhere, but that's a huge part of the country that, what, you can't even check to see what a reliable forecast is going to be? Yeah, I think it's also kind of magnified a bit because there's also not a lot of uh, weather observation like weather stations in the north too so it's kind of a bit of a, a double impact and you know we often think about like the impacts of climate change will um, be greater in the north and so um, you know and the potential for extreme weather is there so it's it's certainly something that has been a gap that's been known for a long time, but it just doesn't seem like anything or the investment hasn't been there to do anything about it. And one of the things I I just mentioned with the the flying situation, I mean, I'm from the North. We see, we see it every, every day actually where um, from my home community is kind of the center for all the flights going to these remote flying communities. And I mean, most of those communities didn't have weather stations and there was no weather radar coverage and so often it might mean having to err on the side of caution and cancel flights for the day um, because a weather forecast says there might be, you know, freezing rain along the road. Whereas if there was weather radar, they might actually be able to see if it's actually there or not. But, you know, so there's an economic cost that comes with this uh, and, you know, uh, particularly yeah. for these communities who have uh, very limited access in and out, right? Are, are we working on this? 
Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, uh, there's a weather radar replacement program that's been ongoing, but what it was was essentially taking the existing network and adding functionality and, and expanding the range a little bit. Um, but that that program is, is still ongoing. It's near it's nearly done. But that massive investment included um, no establishment of new weather radars anywhere uh, anywhere north, really. So um, it's it's something that's a major issue. And you know, given the amount of communities potentially um, lacking resources as is, it's something that that we should certainly be trying to prioritize. Right. We saw that in Florida, though, didn't we, as well, with Hurricane Ian, like towns that thought they were in the path at the end weren't in the path, but then other towns really were. And that that storm shifted quickly. Yeah. And and I think the thing to keep in mind as well is like, you know, obviously most northern places are not going to be faced with uh, the potential for hurricanes. But as as climate conditions change, you know, we are seeing some evidence of things like tornadoes starting to appear further north, but also anybody who spent time in the north recognizes that you can get some pretty nasty weather up there and and actually knowing if it's coming versus having kind of a forecast that says it might arrive um, certainly is something that i think communities would benefit from like you said these storms often can change direction at at the last minute Mm -hmm. areas that you think might be impacted um, you know, uh, could could re- go relatively unscathed because the storm just moved 10 kilometers over or an area like some of these communities that were hit really hard. Um, areas could be hit, you know, head on without necessarily expecting it a day in advance. It's a it's it's a really challenging issue. And, you know, in the United States, uh, the continental U.S. has complete radar coverage um, and Alaska has about 50 percent of Alaska's radar coverage. So it's it's certainly something the United States has invested in. Yeah, well, we need to uh, get some work done here. Robert, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. That's Robert Way. He's a Queen's University geography professor and climate change researcher. I mean, I had no idea about this, and I'm not sure. Did you know about this? The fact that Canada does not have complete weather radar coverage. There are still huge gaps, 30% of the country without weather radar coverage, which doesn't allow for an accurate weather forecast. And as he pointed out, a lot of these are flying communities, right? Places like Labrador or up north, like the Northwest Territories, where you need to fly to get supplies to different places and they don't have accurate weather coverage because of this situation. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, I love that. Now, I do have to say that Raji has picked a topic this morning that deeply offends me. Good morning, Raji. (laughs) <laughs> Good morning, Simi. This is why I picked the topic. I oh, is start it? off with a, a little <laughs> squabble. Okay. Well, some parents are pushing in Quebec for Halloween to happen on the weekend. Now, this is a place where they've tried this before and actually with a little bit of success. They had a major storm in 2019 and they were like, let's postpone Halloween for kids' safety. And it kind of worked, but kind of didn't. Now, they're not going to, after all, they put it to council, they decided not to change Halloween. But it got me thinking, this is like an important thing we should be talking about. Because what I hear from parents is Halloween is a lot for them. And when it's on a random day, like a random weekday this year, it is not a hang on, Simi Sarah, it's on a Monday. How dare you? It is not a random weekday. Halloween is October 31st. That's like saying Christmas should always be on a weekend because it's not convenient to have it during the week. It's too much interruption. Now, of course, I'm saying this and I will declare my bias right now. Halloween is my birthday. So you're telling me that you're going to take away that special thing for October 31st and then make it just another day of the week? Everybody goes trick-or-treating on the Saturday instead? No, 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 no. Here's what I'm saying. Okay, let me get through this because I think – so there is the camp that's like your camp says keep it on the 31st no matter what. Even if it's a Monday, it'll be less fun for the kids. Who cares? Children don't need fun. Uh, Okay, now we've addressed your side of the debate. No, we haven't. No, because let me just – one more thing to add. One more thing to add. I actually – think for the kids, and this is parents being selfish here, because the kids, they don't care what day Halloween is. And in fact, if they go to Halloween on a weekday, they love it. They love going to school and having fun on that day. And it's special and and it just breaks up the monotony. I think kids actually love it when Halloween is whatever day of the week. 
Yeah, so I don't disagree with that, but it's a smaller deal for sure for the family, for the school, for the parents when it is during the week. On a Monday, I know my kid's teacher in grade one is going to be like, okay, kids, don't have candy and don't bring candy to school. She's going to be that teacher. She's going to tell them there's a there's certain things that they can't wear for their costume. Uh, they're not allowed to wear masks. They're not allowed to do all this other stuff. So when it's on the weekend and parents can go all out, I think that is super fun for kids. I remember my own parents when I was a kid and I'm one of five children and my parents would get super into it with us and everybody would dress up. Now, when it happened on a Monday, there was less hoopla for sure. And I loved all the hoopla. I loved that my parents would take us out for hours. They were like, you guys can trick or treat for as long as you want. And when that happened in the middle of the week, that means you're coming home at nine o'clock. You were for sure sure going to eat some candy that night. You still have to get up at 6.30 or 7 for school. It's just not nearly as much fun. As oh, no, it is for the kids, to be fair. Let's be fair here. It's still fun for the kids because it breaks up the school week. Who it's not fun for, you're saying, is some parents. And for the teachers. And actually, no, I'm going to disagree. For my kids, when they go from getting 12 hours of sleep a night down to eight that night, the next day is not going to be as fun at school when they're cranky and uh, annoyed that they didn't get enough sleep. Now, hey man, that's I life. would love to see that's the way it goes. Halloween should happen on the 31st. Absolutely. Don't change the day of Halloween. And then that way at school, they're going to do something special. That's great. Let Halloween be on the 31st. But what I would love to see is let the trick-or-treating happen on the Friday. It'll be super fun for the kids to build up to that during the week. It's a solve for the parents. And also, I want to get dressed up. And I know so many other parents that want to as well, but some of them don't get home from work until 6. No. They're really rushed. See me? No. Come on, see my side on this No, one. I'm not. Absolutely not going to see it because you know what? Oh, we. Oh, it's inconvenient. Oh, it might rain too much. Oh, we should move it. No, it is on the 31st period. And I don't think kids care. Kids only care about they make it to that day and they're going to have some fun. And this is just adults complaining, Raji. That's all this so is. I, I'm throwing my kids a, a big Halloween party with their classrooms and everyone's going to dress up and we're going to do all this like fun stuff because I know that, you know, I, I'm not going to do it on a Monday. That's just not going to happen. But say, for example, if Halloween was on a Friday, I would have been able to do the Halloween party for them you can still on have your the party. Friday. You can still have your party. Could... Lots of adults go to Halloween parties the weekend before <laughs> Halloween. Nobody is saying you can't do it. You just don't have to change everything to make that happen. You go right ahead and have your Halloween party. We're not going to make it. A, we're not going to change anything else about it. I'm sorry. All you right, cannot Sumi. convince me. I'll, I'll leave you on your hill with this But one. I appreciate I will die on this hill. I appreciate your effort, though, Raji. Thank you. Thanks, if you want to weigh in, let's see. I'm sure there's some parents out there who agree with Raji. Say, yes, let's do trick-or-treating only on the weekends. Or maybe you're a purist like me. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. A billion dollars. That's how much Alex Jones was told to pay Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting victims' families as a result of this long process where they have been suing him for the pain that has been caused by his denial of this, by his going on the air and and talking about it and the families essentially being harassed for years and years. Question now, though, is will they ever see any of that money? Joining us now is Wendy Gillette, CBS News correspondent. Wendy, thanks for being here. Sure, of course. This is really a staggering judgment, right? It's a record-breaking. It's the largest defamation suit payout in American history. Six jurors in Connecticut have ordered Alex Jones to pay the families of eight victims and an FBI agent who responded to the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. $965 million. They're all getting different amounts. The highest amount, $120 million going to Robbie Parker, who lost his daughter, in the attack, the jury started deliberating Thursday after a three-week trial, came back with the decision yesterday. The plaintiff's attorney had asked for more than $500 million, so this judgment was almost double that. Wow. wow. But will they ever see any of this, Wendy? Well, legal experts say there will be a variety of methods to try to do just that, such as liens, wage garnishes. The parent company of InfoWars, though, has declared bankruptcy twice this year to try to limit the amount that Jones might have to pay. A bankruptcy judge has ordered new managers to oversee the company, and so now it's going to be a lot of back and forth. How much of the company is wrapped up in uh, bankruptcy court and how much of Alex Jones's 
own personal worth is part of the company and is going to be part of those bankruptcy proceedings. Okay, but are the plaintiffs then kind of committed to seeing this through? They've come this far. Do they have the kind of legal willingness to push even further to get this? Well, I would say so, yeah. I mean, this has been a a long process, and and these families have been through so much already. They've been harassed, as you said. Uh, Terrible stories they told on the stand. Uh, Robbie Parker, who who did lose his daughter, he told a story about in 2016 being accosted by a man at an airport and uh, verbally harassed, yelled at, a, a profanity, a tirade, and uh, asked, uh, how much did the government pay you to uh, lie about losing your daughter? And just horrific stories of heartbreak. And just imagine going through this after losing your daughter in a school shooting, which is just unimaginable in itself. And then going through this being threatened online and harassed online and then in person. It's just, yeah. I, I cannot even imagine going through that. I can't either. Are there more of these cases to come? Yes. Uh, Alex Jones has another trial brought by an additional victim's family that's scheduled to start later this year. It was also already ordered to pay $49 million in August as part of a similar case brought in Texas. He says he can't afford it, but he and his company are supposedly worth as much as $270 million, but of course now all wrapped up in bankruptcy court. Right. So we'll see what happens. But he also doesn't seem to be that concerned about it. He did go on the air yesterday and say that he wasn't going to stop doing what he was doing. Yeah, he mocked the verdict as he live-streamed it on his show. He was not in the courtroom when it was read. He also asked his followers for donations. He and his attorney are promising to appeal and uh, definitely does not seem contrite. He did admit earlier this year that the shooting did take place. He said that during the earlier trial in Texas. Hmm, Interesting times. All right, Wendy, thank you. Sure. That's Wendy Gillette, CBS News correspondent, talking about the Alex Jones case. Uh, Almost a billion dollars in damages that he has been ordered to pay. But of course, the question being, will the families ever even see any of that money? This is Mornings with Simi. Some startling statistics and really kind of sad statistics coming from the BC Coroner Service yesterday. We heard that the number of deaths among BC's unhoused population jumped 75%. And that was just in one year, between 2020 and 2021. This is a preliminary report that was just released. It found that 247 people who were experiencing homelessness died last year. And of those deaths that were deemed accidental, 93% were caused by the illicit drug supply. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Guy Felicella, who's a harm reduction advocate who knows what he's talking about, overcame drug addiction himself. Guy, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. What did you think when you heard these statistics? Well, I mean, I wasn't really surprised at all. I mean, you know, lots had changed. I guess the added risks with, you know, COVID, the pandemic, the drug supply significantly changed. Uh, Limited capacity at facilities, you know, shelters were cut down. So people had to really, you know, fend for themselves. And, um, you know, the restrictions of where to go and what to access, you know, it left people, you know, those, those restrictions actually killed a lot of homeless people. Uh, and a lot of substance users in our province. And so, you know, again, you know, people using alone, um, feeling stigmatized against because of their substance use, not reaching out for help, not being able to go to the the usual spots that they would go to in the morning, um, just really caused, uh, you know, what we what we see today. Do you think anything has changed? I mean, I know this was kind of at the height of the pandemic, but did we get our bearings again? Have things improved at all? Well, you know, not um, in regards for addressing uh, unhoused people, no. And also, again, uh, obviously the illicit drug supply is just significantly changing faster than our response towards it. And so... Um, this is just going to be, you know, continue to get worse if we actually don't make significant changes in our not only our policies, but also uh, giving people access to uh, safer substances as well. Okay, so we are trying to move toward that guy, but I guess is the progress just not fast enough? Yeah, you just, you know, you have an unregulated market that's controlled by, you know, organized crime. I mean, you can't see what goes on there. The only chance that you have is if somebody does bring those substances in to get them checked, and then you can discover what's in them. 
Um, but then the supply can change. It's already changed. I, I mean, right. it's just changing so rapidly. And so we just, we just haven't done enough to, to really support people who are using substances. And so, you know, uh, it, it's just going to sadly uh, continue. What about the communication within that community, Guy? Do people not realize that, okay, look at what's happening here. This is very dangerous. Therefore, I have to be careful. Yeah, for sure they are. I mean, you know, everybody in there, nobody's, you know, uh, obviously using substances wanting to die. I mean, obviously, you know, that the, there's just so many challenges in people's lives. And I think lately, um, especially just with, you know, the reaction from the public towards people who are unhoused or towards people using drugs, the stuff that people were talking about now, in some circumstances, acting it out towards people who are homeless, uh, it's really caused a lot of alarm. So, you know, people are you know, trying to do their best to just hide out and, and use. Um, sadly, uh, if you're using alone, uh, you're at severe risk today. And that's, you know, really our my best response to anybody who uses substances is don't use them alone. But also on the other flip side of on the if you see how many of the unhoused people who have died out of the last year, which was 247, because out of the 2000, you can see that substance use isn't, again, just a homeless issue. It's right across all demographics. Right. So I guess we do wonder, like, what what does it take to get that message through then, Guy, that this is a clear and present danger? It is, you know, every time you're you're taking drugs, you are gambling with your life. And that message doesn't seem to be getting through. Yeah, it, well, you know, I, I think there's a, a lot of complex things going on that make people feel really isolated and hopeless. Uh, you know, not enough supports, uh, not only for their mental health, but their physical health. You know, we've looked at it as, uh, as you know, you either you know, got to get off substances. And sure, for some people, that's a reality. But obviously, for the ones that it's not. We need to do a better job at supporting them uh, to give them the ability to one day, uh, you know, have some things in place to make a different decision in their lives, hopefully. So, you know, we have to do more to support people um, who are using substances and more to support people who don't want to use substances. And until those gaps get closed in. Uh, we're going to continue to see this um, sadly continue. I'm sorry I don't have any better news. No, I know, I know. But that's the thing, right? That's why we have to keep on talking about it, too. So those gaps that you talk about, though, in the system, like, are they seen? Do we know those gaps? Does the system know that those gaps are there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you try to go access detox services or treatment services. And, um, you know, if you want to go to recovery, that's going to take time to get you in there. And then also, too, you know, with a lot of the private facilities, you know, there's a lot of people that point fingers at the downtown east side, uh, but unfortunately don't go down there to offer a solution or show them that there's another way or come down there. I encourage everybody to come down there and start, you know, uh, putting more effort into supporting people. I know a lot of people that come down there and hand out food. Well, uh, before people used to come down there and hand out cards and uh, let them know that, uh, you know, hey, we're, we're a recovery society that exists and, you know, you can, we can help you yeah. get there. And, you know, just a lot of things that haven't happened. And I think, you know, that compounds the issue too, because that's what inspired me to, to actually know that something else existed was people coming down there and saying, Hey man, like if you're struggling, there's a, there's, a, there is something better. We can try to help you. And, you know, once that started to happen, it starts to, your mind starts to see things that are different uh, because change only happens when people show you that there is a way to change. Right. So. Yeah, but they have to re- they have to have that moment where they get that in front of them, right? Yeah, and kindness goes a long way. You come down there, hand out a sandwich, a couple cups of coffee, and talk to people. You know, I I see people go down there, and you know when they go down there to create a documentary uh, on how the downtown east side, they come there with a camera crew, but they're not down there by themselves without a camera crew talking to people. It's a completely different, uh, you know, uh, perspective yeah. when you're when you're talking to people on the street. I mean, there's people that are struggling and they want help. They want support. They want housing. They want to get off drugs. There's a lot of people down there that want all those things. Uh, they're trying. Um, but, you know, we don't celebrate people trying. We look at the, the outcomes of people's successes. And unfortunately, I, I celebrate people trying. I always encourage people like, hey, just keep keep doing what you're doing, man. We're going to figure this out. Like, Well, let's hope so. Uh, Guy, thank you so much for your time. 
No, thanks for having me, Cindy. Have a great day. You too. That's Guy Felicella, harm reduction advocate, talking about the stats from the BC Coroner's Service showing the huge number, the huge jump, something like 75% of the uh, unhoused population. So the number of deaths among BC's unhoused population jumped 75% in a one-year period between 2020 and 2021. And that is shockingly high. These are people, these are names, these are faces, these are friends. And that's why up next we are going to hear from CKNW contributor Eric Chapman who learned about who some of these people were. This is Mornings with Simi. So we're talking about the BC Coroner Service report that came out in the last 24 hours talking about the really huge increase, the 75% increase in deaths among people who are experiencing homelessness in BC. And that was over a one-year period, 2020 to 2021. But who were these people? Who were some of the 247 people who died? Well, they are all sorts of faces, all from all sorts of places, actually. They are helping to save those people with no homes. The people who are out there working to help people are also dying. So our community contributor, Eric Chapman, had a chat with Trey Helton, who works at the Overdose Prevention Society. Well, he wanted to share with us uh, kind of a picture of some of the people that were lost during that time so that we don't have to think of them as a number, but we can think of them as people that were lost to us. Have a listen. Uh, I think it's 50. In the, in the downtown east side, it's 50. But if you're, if you're a drug user, um, most, of the, most of the stats would reveal that it's primarily men that are dying in the overdose crisis between the age of 18 and 45. So if you're a drug user and uh, you're over 45, you've beat the life expectancy. Did it fit the bill of the people that some of the people that you lost this year, that that kind of frame you just made? The year kicked off with uh, downtown Eastside um, community member Mike Stone dying in January. He was he was over 50, so he lived past the life expectancy in, in the downtown Eastside. Toxic drug overdose. Then in February, it was my friend Josh Primo. We buried his sister um, earlier in 2021. So it's just super, super sad, like having a memorial for one family member in the downtown east side. Then the family member that showed up for that memorial was dead six months later. So Josh died at a party. He got contaminated crack. He was a stimulant user and there was fentanyl in it. And people at the party, I guess, believed that they needed naloxone to reverse the overdose. And like something really important to reiterate to people is that, yeah, naloxone is good. But um, if the person still has a pulse and naloxone isn't around, oxygen is the most important thing. You got to get that person flat on their back, give them a breath every five seconds, keep oxygen going to their brain Unfortunately, there was no naloxone at this party and everyone was running around like a chicken with their head cut off and Josh ended up dying as a result. So super sad, big loss for the skateboarding community. Then in uh, April, we lost uh, Ben Stevenson. He was a um, a Vancouver, uh, Vancouver Health Authority employee he was a drug spectrometer tester so if if anyone should know the dangers of drug toxicity uh it would have been ben he tested a lot of uh, drugs on the downtown east side with the spectrometer and it even got him uh so unfortunately he passed in april maybe we just stop on ben for a sec too he was working he was doing a job and and another reminder that this is your you know it's your neighbor it's it's not who you think it is it's people that use drugs are lawyers they are doctors they are caregivers they are teachers and they are our neighbors and i think that i just wanted to pause on that it's just i think it's a good reminder of that yeah absolutely it's uh somebody's family member and um you know they're not they're not just throwaways of society help you some people would classify them you know what i mean uh the next one was uh was ops staff member kevin lyons in july you know classic uh using a loan situation like 
Uh, it's an, another big reason that people are dying is using alone. And, you know, and there's a, there's some solutions to avoid that. If you're a drug user and you're going to use alone, there's the lifeguard app. It's an app you can uh, download on your phone and, uh, you know, set a timer for when you're, when you're going to use your drugs and it checks in with you and, you have to turn off the timer, and if you don't turn off the timer, it'll send a, send an ambulance to your location. So that's one of the things. Another thing is um, going to use a place, a safe injection site like Insight or or Overdose Prevention Society, where you can be safely monitored. Um, yeah, just don't use alone. Like that's the number one thing, right? Yeah, that is the number one thing. Don't use alone. That is our community contributor, Eric Chapman. Uh, talking with Trey Helton, who is with the Overdose Prevention Society, about all the lives lost, many of them people that Trey knew. And we know this because of the BC Coroner Service telling us yesterday, confirming that there was a 75% increase in the number of unhoused people who died between 2020 and 2021. That is a huge increase. And those are people, those aren't just numbers, as Trey pointed out to us just now. This is Mornings with Simi. We are now just a couple of days away from Municipal Election Voting Day here in BC. And right across the province, right across Metro Vancouver, we've seen a real similarity with the issues that are being talked about. We've seen housing, affordability, uh, the pace of development, and of course, public safety has been a huge issue. So this week, we've been turning our attention to the mayoral race in Surrey, and we are focusing on public safety. In Surrey, as Surrey residents know, this issue has been in the forefront for years. Uh, Replacing the Surrey RCMP with a municipal police force was a huge election promise back in 2018. Some might say it had something to do with tipping the election in Doug McCallum's favour, actually. But having enough officers, getting this service up and running, and whether it even should be up and running, all of that is once again front and centre four years later in 2022. And most importantly, will this make a difference in the community? Will people be safer or feel safer as a result of this? So all this week, we have been talking with major mayoral candidates in Surrey. Today, we have with us Ginny Sims, Surrey mayoral candidate for Surrey Forward. Thank you so much for being with us. Real pleasure to be talking with you, Simi. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. That's true. (laughs) What are you hearing from residents? Like, What are their concerns about public safety? They really care about public safety. They care about their kids being shot. They're worried about uh, the gang violence, the drugs on the streets, the petty crime. Businesses are worried about uh, safety and security of their businesses. Uh, They are more worried about public safety and less worried about the colour of the uniforms. For the last four years, both Brenda Locke and Doug McCullum, who both, by the way, voted, to have uh, moved to the Surrey Police Service and both knowingly voted for this without a business plan. And uh, both have just spent four years throwing darts and arrows about the color of the uniforms. And I have yet to hear them talking about the importance of public safety or what is happening on our streets. And I can tell you, we are the only team who has been talking about public safety in a holistic manner. One, this transition has been messed up by uh, the mayor and the council. Uh, They went forward without a business plan and just railroaded it through. Look, Surrey is large enough to have its own police force. I think we all admit that. However, the issue is really about policing. So our goal is to um, suspend the policing And what we really need to do is crack down on uh, petty crime, work to eliminate gang activity and make sure that our communities and our kids at our schools are feeling safe. Okay, so are you saying that you you would suspend the transition? Uh, Absolutely. We have to stop the transition and do a reset. We need to get real data and do a real assessment of how much it's cost to date, how much more it's going to cost, And what is the best uh, public and safety provider who will provide us the best public safety and then make a decision? Right now, we have no data. All we have is Brenda Locke saying it's going to cost us 521 million, an unbelievably high number. 
And on the other hand, Doug McCollum saying it's going to be 60 million, and it's hard to believe either. So I think what we have to do is stop the transition, do a reset, do a full assessment, and then move forward so that we can have the best policing, so that we can deal with the real issues that families in Surrey really care about. Let me ask you, though, how does that deal with the issue, though, of not having enough police officers in Surrey? Because in effect, with the number of officers currently there, when you combine the RCMP and the SPS, there are still the same number of officers as there were four years ago, and that's not enough for a growing community. So how do you get more officers to work there in Surrey? Simi, uh, right now, I would say most police officers, whether they're coming into the SPS or Surrey RCMP, are wondering why would we want to go and work in a system where it's a gong show and it's been a gong show for four years. I've been yelling loud in Ottawa for many, many years, as you know, from 2011, that Surrey was desperately short of policing back in 2011. I think that's why the reset is needed. Number one, identify the number of policing that we need and then move forward with a model that will give us the number of policing we need. Uh, You know, uh, we have a saying here that a lot of people tell me, well, if you're in Delta, you call for a police car, they come. Well, I believe our frontline police workers, whether they're Surrey police or RCMP, are working incredibly hard. But I can also tell you, they're telling us they are incredibly understaffed. So that's the assessment anybody coming Mm -hmm. in has to do and make sure that we give our police service the tools they need and the resources they need. And that may include, and I bet you it will, more police officers. Look, instead of spending millions and millions of dollars getting something wrong and upsetting everybody and not getting any results, isn't it about time to freeze things, do a proper assessment, have a proper budget, and then move forward after public consultation. Right. I believe it's time for sanity to return to Surrey. All of that is going to cost money, though, right? More officers. You said yourself it's understaffed. What about the budget then? How do you pay for that? And, you know, what kind of a tax increase are Surrey residents looking at for that? Well, we have said that uh, we will uh, hold the line on taxes. But at the same time, there is money being spent now on not getting this right and not doing this properly. Uh, So I think that's why we do need to have a reset. Right now, I can tell you the taxpayers in Surrey, when they hear the number that are associated here, it is very, very worrisome for them. And I think they deserve to know the truth before we move forward. What they really want for me is public safety. They don't care about the color of the cars. They don't care about the color of the uniforms. What they do care about is that when they call a police officer, when they need police, they come. What they want us to focus on, once again, is to crack down on petty criminals so they don't become career criminals. When I look at the plan we put forward, we're the only ones that are looking at creative ways. There is no magic pill here. But what, but what we have to use is a multifaceted approach. Yeah, I want to hear about those creative ways, though, because do you think policing needs to change? Because Surrey seems to be getting the same result from doing things the same way all along. So what needs to change to get different results? I think, number one, what we need to have is a police force that gets some direction. And uh, that's what the public safety charter will provide for them. And then what we need to do is have some benchmarks going into the future and maybe do day, you know, regular report cards every three months, every six months back to the public with the progress that we are making on the elements of the safety charter that they really, really care about. And, you know, something uh, we have to work even harder in a different way to eliminate gang activity. I look at Surrey. We're the only municipality around here. Everybody around us has cannabis shops. Look, I opposed cannabis legalization when the debate was occurring, but it hasn't happened. That ship has sailed. Right now, kids in Surrey have to rely on illegal activity, and that feeds the gang culture to buy their cannabis. And we know they're buying it 
because they can't buy it. And I'm not talking about kids underage. I'm talking about even young adults. Or they have to go to Langley, or they have to go to White Rock, or they have to go to New Westminster. So even something simple as that, if you have regulated stores, they will be re less corrupted product being sold. That's a safety issue in the middle of this opioid crisis. So there are many, many different ways we have to come at it. We have to have a police force that is more present, that is more culturally sensitive to the needs of this diverse community, that intermingles with our community, not just when they are called, but at other times, uh, at prevention, early intervention, uh, at rehabilitation. Let me this ask. This is a seven-step progress uh, program. Let me ask you here then, because we're running out of time. But I've asked this question of every candidate. I'll ask it of you too. Why should people vote for you? When it comes to public safety, we are the only ones with a plan going forward, and I have the experience uh, of being the BCTF president, an MP, MLA, a minister, to provide Surrey with an open, transparent, and accountable government where everybody gets fair treatment and where they will have a council, where they will have a mayor who's focused on what really matters to people. And that's affordability issues, building affordable housing, building housing for low income and middle income, speeding up the uh, permitting process, where we will have public transit to get people up, out of their cars, buses every 10 minutes, running till midnight. Right now they stop at nine in most of Surrey and we are at traffic gridlock, getting a SkyTrain from Surrey Centre all the way through Newton into South Surrey, which was promised by the way and not delivered during the last term. And overall bringing more childcare, a person who knows how the system works federally and provincially and is a good negotiator and will know how to negotiate mm -hmm. and bring major investments into Surrey. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate that. Thank you, Simi. That is Ginny Sims, Surrey mayoral candidate for the party Surrey Forward. This is our continuing series that we're doing on the election in Surrey. And we have one more candidate to go. That is Sukh Dhaliwal will be joining us tomorrow on the show. And yes, we will be talking about public safety. Now, if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know the soaring cost of food has a lot of people shopping for groceries, perhaps a little bit differently. But for charitable organizations that depend on kind of reasonable cost to serve the community, that same inflation can have devastating effects, as we're hearing about in the South Surrey area, where one charitable organization is closing its doors after 50 years. For more on that, we're joined by our Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Simi. Yeah, the South Surrey Meals on Wheels has had to close. So back in June, they'd made this desperate plea to the public for more volunteers, for more cash donations, uh, but they did not see that bump. And they say they just simply could not operate anymore. And now I know we're saying today gas prices are down a little bit. They are for sure, but some of the ingredients that this organization depends on have doubled in price. Those prices are not changing anytime soon. And then you also have the fact that they need to make these deliveries for the meals. And gas prices still, it's still high, even if it has gone down. And it's really sad that they've closed because They've been around, like you said, there for 50 years. That's just so long. So they were a staple in the community and a much needed service. In fact, a hot meal delivery service for the elderly and the vulnerable, this was actually one of my longest standing volunteer jobs. I did it uh, for years as a student. And when I was out on that route, I, I realized just how vital it is to the people who are signed up for it, Simi. It's uh, for some folks, it's the only person that they're going to see that day is the person who's delivering their meal. And, you know, it's a hot meal for some, for sure. For others, it's uh, so much more than that. It's that social interaction. And when I heard that the Surrey, the South Surrey branch was closing, I called the Meals on Wheels in Cloverdale and a volunteer who picked up the phone had just learned the news herself that morning. She was so upset at hearing it. Um, because she knows that they want to help people. And now just because of inflation, they they can't do it in the way that they were. And Christine Moretton runs the program at the Cloverdale North Delta branch. 
She's so dedicated, Simi. We had a nice chat. And she's supposed to be an administrator there in the office doing uh, paperwork, computer work. But of course, she's also answering calls. And these days, she's the one doing the deliveries. So basically, she's doing the job of five people at Meals on Wheels. And Christine says that delivering that freshly prepared meal to clients is about so much more than just getting them fed. It's definitely uh, good for their mental health to have somebody who, although we don't do, you know, wellness checks per se, we do do wellness checks in the matter of checking on them to make sure that they're all right, make sure that they have the meals they need. I myself, when I drive, I check on the clients. I ask them if there is something I could do for them, as in one lady today asked me if I could open a jar for her. I opened a jar for her. And being able to do that, what's it like for you? Oh, I find this a very fulfilling role not only in the office, but when I do get out into the field to deliver meals, it's really an uplifting experience. I hear that from quite a few of our volunteers who tell me that it's a really feel-good, involved experience. Since COVID began, of course, we weren't seeing our clients because they are elderly and they were, you know, the most at risk, as well as immune compromised people. So, you know, it was, it was sad for us, as well as for them, that we were having to leave the meals in a box or a cooler outside. I did make a point of calling clients on the phone to check in on them and that kind of thing to make sure that they had somebody to talk to. So it's not just the meals that we are delivering. We are delivering even a couple of minutes of visiting or companionship, you might call it. That is so necessary. So then, Raji, is there anything people can do to keep the doors open? Can we help? Well, so the one in South Surrey is closed now and the other branches are in desperate need right now of volunteers. They also need cash donations. And as far as the volunteering goes, what they really need is drivers. They need people to deliver the meals and they need a commitment of one time a week because uh, that's an important part of the service that uh, these vulnerable or elderly people can depend on seeing the same face on a regular basis and uh, that it makes just such a difference in their lives and their daily daily well-being. Yeah. Also, what a great thing to volunteer for because you're bringing you're bringing food to people and they're really looking forward to it and so there's there's kind of happiness associated with that and I feel like that's a great thing to volunteer for yeah I found it so fulfilling Simi I and there were days where I felt like it gave me uh, more than it gave the person that I delivered a meal to uh, because yes like you said they're looking forward to seeing your face and then you look forward to seeing them and yeah. to contributing to the day and you, you know you might open a, a can for them one day another day you might uh, talk to them about their plants or something that they're passionate about and uh, it's just such a, an important service for the community. Yeah. So I just want to mention that people can continue to donate to them. That's Meals on Wheels and it's SNDMOW.com. Okay. So necessary though. Also for some of those people that you're delivering a meal to and just having that little chat, Raji, I'm sure that in some cases that might be the, the, one of the few connections that they have, right? For some isolation is such a huge issue for seniors that even getting them to chat about the meals that you're delivering, that's a big deal. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there are there are some folks that uh, are senior who, like you say, they don't have tons of social interactions and they might be in a situation where mobility wise they can't get out so they can't even go for a walk. So that hot meal, the interaction is so big for them. And you'd think that an organization like this would be well supported by government funding and that kind of thing, but they're really not. And it's a charitable organization. The meals themselves, the clients do pay for them, but they're only $10.50. And if you factor in everything that has to go into that, that's a pretty decent 
price for like it's a good price to to pay for a hot meal it's not too much uh but given all of that that's why they're not eligible for a whole bunch of grant programs and so they really do depend on those donations sure do all right thank you so much for that raji Thanks, Amy. That is our Raji Silhal there. Like sad news at Meals on Wheels in South Surrey has shut its doors after 50 years of serving that community. But there are other Meals on Wheels programs that you can help out with who still need you, whether it's, you know, providing a donation, whether it's volunteering your time. And honestly, what a great way to volunteer your time if you can do that. Just, you know, Google Meals on Wheels and you can find the chapter for your neighborhood, for your area, and you can definitely pitch in and help out. This is Mornings with Simi. So do you appreciate the honesty or do you think, I don't need to see this on my bill? So there's a woman in Victoria, you probably heard her on the news this morning. She was not happy recently when she went to a restaurant in Victoria and a small fee was added to her bill there. And it was health benefits for employees and they were passing the cost on to the customers, but in a separate charge on the bill. And that's the thing. Some people might think, oh, okay, well, at least they're being transparent about it and I could see where the money is going. But others might be like, why am I being charged extra for this? It's a risk that restaurants are taking with that. Joining us now to talk more about this is Ian Tossenson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Hello, Ian. Hey, Simi. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Have you heard of a lot of restaurants doing this? Uh, well, no. Um, my first sort of exposure to this was in, Cal- was in Cal- was San Francisco about two months ago. And they had an 8% uh, tax, surcharge tax. So I asked a question, and it was a surcharge tax that was going towards uh, employee health programs. And they were very visible in the restaurant on their menus and said, this is what we're doing uh, in our particular situation. But the, the thing there is that um, it gets complicated because there's certain laws in the U.S. For example, uh, tipping can be shared across front of the house, back of the house in, in, in Canada, but in some states you can't do that. So you, it's hard to compare. So we're not seeing a lot of that. And it is a bit surprising. This that happened about maybe about a year and a half ago. There was a Victoria restaurant that added surcharges. I think they've since dropped them because there was backlash and now it's popped up again. Um, I think to me the, the issue is really, um, there, there's a sort of a, um, a similar situation happened about three or four years ago. Do you remember uh, when you went into the liquor store, the price on the shelf was the price right. on the shelf, so it was $18, it was $18 you checked out, and suddenly the prices on liquor stores went down, but suddenly your price went up when you paid it because they had the tax on back of the bill. Right. And people didn't like that. So the lesson was people like to know what the price is, and adding stuff on – and making you think about it, particularly in a restaurant environment, we don't think is, is great guidance. I did a, a survey of about 10 restaurants uh, this morning, uh, knowing I was coming on to speak to you, and unanimously the answer was, no, we shouldn't be adding surcharges. We have to build that in to all the things that we do. Uh, people don't like to have to sort of audit their bills. And then you have the yeah. question of, gee, what's on my bill here? What's that all about? And now you're into a whole different discussion with your guests when they're just trying to have a nice time. You're so right, though, Ian. It is kind of this mental thing. It's like a human psychological thing, isn't it? Is that if we see the price, the price can be whatever, but if that's the price we're paying, then that's fine. We're okay with that. But if you're going to, even if you make it cheaper, but then you add on other prices, we're going to think twice about that. I think about the door delivery services, too. Once they started separating out all the door delivery fees, I think a lot of people, including myself, went, wait a minute, what is this all about? Totally, and and it, it's that, that expectation that you know, balls sort of been, gee, I just bought this for that, and suddenly, yeah, but there's an eighty dollar delivery. We just actually bought something the other day for the house, and uh, I thought this was really great. And the guy goes, yeah, it's an eighty dollars delivery fee. I'm like, ah, so that's fine. But you're right. I, it's it, what we need to do is is do the very best that we can to keep our our menu prices that are reasonable. I mean, they have gone up. There's no question that we've been faced with. Um, you know, food inflation, energy inflation, all these different things, employer health tax and stuff. We need to work as an industry really tough on government to make sure that we don't have extra fees and surcharges put on. And in fact, we should see some reductions on property tax, on, you know, environmental fees like we did in Vancouver, you know, cut fees, all this kind of stuff. Government needs to realize that all this stuff will, will take its toll. 
And suddenly now you have a $25 hamburger and people go, well, I don't want to go out anymore. So it, that we have to really manage that. And, you know, all of our pricing on a menu, uh, Simi, it builds in everything. It builds in labor, rent, exactly, um, all that kind of stuff. So why would we all of a sudden start pulling out fees and adding them? I just don't think it's right. That's what I don't understand either. Like from a business perspective, you're already doing that. You're building all that stuff in. Why are you separating this fee and letting people know when some people aren't going to like it. Uh, on another note, you know, how is the business doing? Because I know prices have gone up, right? Some places have had to raise those prices because of the inflation costs, the grocery costs. How is that going? Well, the sunny uh, weather we're having is really helping us. It's like patio season in October uh, in general. But, um, you know, Sydney, it's going well. Um, everybody's got their head down. We are executing the game plan um we're adjusting a little bit to labor now it's not as busy as it was in the summertime that continues to be our biggest issue is uh, is labor and i think you'll see us coming up with a really aggressive campaign to talk to the public about how awesome it is to work in restaurants and and get a job life job experience in restaurants in time to sort of account for that but our biggest issue is going to be that and managing costs and working with government and reminding government that they were awesome partners during the pandemic and they have to continue to just not see the restaurant industry which has such low margins uh, to begin with as a way to keep you know doing social experiments or adding more fees or doing this sort of stuff so it's uh it's better but it's not of the woods i think we're a couple of years away from complete stability right and so then what is your message as well to restaurant owners about this kind of thing do what you can, uh, build it into your price. Um, you know, we're in the hospitality business, and if you're, if we now force the consumer or our guests to have to audit their bills to see if there's any, because some people will see it as trickery, um, and some people see it as completely open and honest and transparent, but I think the issue is is that we're better off just to say our prices are price includes that we, have, we take care of our staff, we have good policies in-house. I mean, a good restaurant is going to do all that stuff anyways and build it into the price of the hamburger, and, and that's that's what it's going to be. So our advice is don't, don't add surcharges on. You're going to create more controversy at the table. And you're going to put that server. Imagine a server trying to explain this. Well, by the way, yeah, what yeah. is this charge? So just build in and move on with it. In time, the inflationary pressures are under right now, it's going to start to, to, to come down. I mean, even, you know, gas prices came down. So things will start to, in time, come back to normal. But right now, adding those fees on at the end, um, not a good idea. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Ian, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Have a good day. That's Ian Tossinson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association, talking about how there's been a couple of restaurants, and this has happened in, ever since the um, you know, medical service plan fees got put back onto the employers as opposed to us individually paying them. There have been a couple of restaurants who have put this as an extra charge uh, on their on the bills of the customers. And you know what? As, as Ian pointed out, it's a um, hit or miss proposition. Some people will be like, oh, okay, I appreciate the honesty on that. Others, they just want the whole price. They don't want to pay one thing on the menu and then find a whole bunch of other charges when they get to the end of their meal, right? And Janice wrote me, and Janice, I went through the same thing that you just did, actually, because I did some homework on this this morning as well. And Janice said that she wrote about a restaurant, another restaurant in Victoria, not this one, but there's another restaurant in Victoria that added a same BCH tax on her bill. She says it was $4.50 on $51, which worked out to a 9% additional charge. So then she goes on the internet. And she finds this same restaurant and the owner of this restaurant from two years ago and the article stating that they were putting a 1% charge on people's bills to pay for this. And now she says, well, wait a minute, I just did the tax on this and I just paid 9%. She said, so what is going on here? She says, there's nothing to advise customers of this additional charge on the menu or elsewhere. She says, I will not be going back there again for sure. Here's the other problem for restaurant owners. How many people do you think Janice is going to tell? Janice is going to tell a lot of people about this. And in times like this, when so much business comes from word of mouth, a bad experience like that is really not something restaurants need to have, as, as Ian Tossinson was just saying there. So if you want to weigh in on this, send me at cknw.com. I myself, I am a just show me what the price is, but that better be the price. I would prefer to have it all built in there instead of having it separated out. When I talked about the um, food delivery apps, I will tell you absolutely 100% since they started breaking out the service fees and showing you how much everything is, 
I've pretty much stopped ordering because I'm thinking, yeah, that's what the price is now. But when I get to the end, it's going to be way higher. It's just, I guess, the way the human brain works for some people. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 